of John, uh, John 15, uh, 1 to 7. It's where Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before he is crucified and he's teaching them all about himself. And so we're in John 15, sentences 1 through to 7. And Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Each branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown to the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Uh, well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, we're in our third week of our series on prayer. And as Gavin mentioned before, the reason we're starting the year this way is that we wanted to start 2019 in prayerful dependence on God. And so we've looked at a couple of uh, topics on what the Bible says about prayer. And we come to this one, the third one from John 15, on praying the Word, praying the very Word of God. I guess to kick off, I wanted, I guess, it is thinking about how it is that our prayer lives reveal what we think about who God is and what He has done. That in fact, it's kind of, they're really inseparable. Your, the way that you pray will show what you believe about God, and what you believe about God will affect how you pray. It reminds me of a, a kind of a gag I heard years ago about a kid who wanted a bike because everyone in his year group had a bike. And so uh, he decided to ask his parents for one. They said it was too expensive. And so he did what kids sometimes do and just went outside and sat in the gutter and bawled his eyes out. But as he was doing that, uh, a churchman walks by and says, kid, you know, what's up? And he says, well, you know, I really want a bike. Everyone's got a bike. I don't have one. And he says, oh, you should pray. And so he's like, all right, that sounds like a good idea. So he goes home. He prays to God earnestly for a bike. And lo and behold, the next day, there is no bike. And so he thinks, okay, well, maybe I, maybe I did it wrong. I guess I haven't really been schooled in prayer. So it's probably worth me finding out, you know, how to sort of get this thing done. And so he's like, where's a place where I could learn it? He flicks on the TV and he goes to the Christian channel. And he sees a white-suited, white-toothed preacher just saying, you know, uh, if if you claim the promises of God, you can have anything you want. And so he goes home and he decides, all right, that's how you get God's attention. So he gets down in his room before his bed and he says, Dear Lord, I pray that you give me a bicycle. And nothing happens. And so the next day he decides, all right, well, clearly that wasn't the way forward. So uh, I I need to learn it from someone else. So he goes to a a very pious-looking ceremonial church with smoke and mirrors and all that kind of stuff. And he says, these people seem pretty serious, and they're all talking in Latin and stuff. So he's like, all right, that's how you crack the God God code. So he goes home, just gets a Latin dictionary open, starts saying Spiritus Sanctus, whatever, and then just says, give me a bike. And nothing happens. And finally, fed up, like a child can so often be, he walks out into the lounge room, he gets a statue of Mary, he puts it next to his bed and he says, Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again, give me a bicycle. They get the kind of joke of the gag, right? The idea that like in a child's mind, that God's arm could be twisted, that he could be blackmailed into giving you what you, know, you want. 
But it is the case that no matter who you are, your prayer life reflects what you think about God. I mean, obviously, if you are unconvinced or skeptical that there even is a God, that's going to have some impact on how you pray. But even for, even for you know, secular, you know, modern people, there may have been a time where you've cried out in the hope that is there anything or anyone out there who can help me at this point? That reveals something about what you think about life, the universe, and God. As a Christian, how you pray reveals what you think about God. Do you believe that God is really going to answer your prayers? Or do you live a kind of a, you know, a, you live as a, a confessing Christian, but are almost, when it comes to your prayer life, functionally atheist? That it's barely even there. You kind of believe that God is a little bit like an absentee father who gave you a big bundle of toys at the beginning of your life, but now it's on you. You've got to work it all out. You're on your own from here out. Do you pray like a beggar before an unsympathetic king who you assume is just tired of your constant requests and has almost had enough, so every time you go, you go hat in hand, hoping that he may hear you this time? Do you demand like a spoiled child? Do you throw tantrums in the hope that it would turn the heart of God toward your request? That he's like a weak parent who can just be worn down through pester power? However you pray or don't pray will reveal what you believe is the true character of God. And what Jesus is teaching us from John 15, the gathered out just before, is that our prayers are to be informed not by our personal opinions of what God might be like or second-hand opinions of who He could be, but from who He reveals Himself to be in His Word. That the Word and prayer go together, and when you separate them, it all falls apart. And we're going to see how it is that this dynamic leads to a rich and intimate, close prayer life with God. One that I think many of us are starved of. So let's pray that that would be the case this afternoon. Father God, we praise you that you're a good and loving Heavenly Father. That you love to answer the prayers of your children. That you command us to pray and to ask of you. And so often we neglect this to our own detriment. Father, we pray that you would break through sin and misunderstandings, that we might see who you are clearly and what your will is for your people, that we might come before you humbly and bring prayer requests that glorify you, that we might see you glorified in our eyes. Amen. Well, the center point that we're really looking at from this one passage is from sentence 7. And in John fifteen seven, it says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, is this just a a carte blanche for prayer? Jesus is saying, God is just a genie in the sky. Just whatever you want, any time you want, it is the ultimate butler service. You ask for anything, he's going to serve it up to you. Well, obviously we're skeptical of that kind of interpretation. But why? Well, two clear reasons would be right there in the passage. He has two conditions before he makes this statement. Before he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now what does this mean? What is he talking about here? He explains it in the first six verses of this passage. In John 15, 1-6, this is what we read. I am the true vine. It should come up on the screen for you. John 15, 1-6. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. 
You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch can bear fruit of, uh, cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So what does all this mean? Jesus got a lot of metaphors in there about fruit and vines and branches and all this sort of gear. But one of the things that does stand out is he's saying, look, if you are to follow me, that means abiding in me. So to be a believer in Jesus means that you trust in him. And he says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can do nothing without him. There is nothing that you can do in the Christian life without him and without him sustaining it. But then in the last sentence, he says something that may have caught your attention if you're a follower of Jesus. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now for Jesus, that is very much the language of eternal judgment and separation. So we start the passage with this idea of branches abiding in Jesus, but then in the end, if you don't abide in him, then you'll be cast off forever. Is Jesus saying here, that you can go from being a follower of Jesus to walking away from Jesus, a true disciple to being truly apostate and falling away from him. Is that what he's getting at here? Well, no, I don't think so. Jesus' teaching in the book of John needs to be read as a whole, and Jesus teaches very clearly that all who are his can never not be his. For example, Jesus says in John six thirty-seven and 39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. These are the strongest possible terms. And he says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is saying the flock that the Father gives him will never not be his flock. They will never fall away. He will never let them go. All that the Father gives him, he will hold on to. Where he goes on again in John 10, 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's how they know that they're his sheep. These are the ones that hear his voice and respond. And he says, And I will not lose a single one of them. These are the strongest possible statements about the fact that once you are a follower of Jesus, you are never not a follower of Jesus. That it's God who brings about new life in you and he doesn't ever undo that work. So what is he talking about here with these branches that are then cast out? Well, it seems that Jesus is saying that there can be those who claim to follow him, to abide in him, believe in him, remain in him, who are not truly disciples. The clearest example and the most obvious is that even amidst the 12, the 12 disciples who are there, there is one who is going to betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. One who claimed to be a disciple and yet was not truly. One who claimed to be abiding in Jesus and yet was not. Jesus is teaching that there are some who have gathered near him, who claim to be his followers, who have never actually tasted of saving grace and will not be there on the last day. This is what the Bible's teaching is really about something we call common grace. There is an experience of God's grace called common, called common grace that even those who don't follow Jesus may experience and mistake for saving grace. Let me explain it in, in the easiest way I can think of. 
Years ago, so Gavin and I used to work in youth ministry a lot together. And for our church in particular, camps were a big part of our youth ministry. And the biggest one was the summer camp at the, at the beginning of the year. And really the two main features of this camp were kind of were, were great sort of uh, spiritual growth moments and, uh, and minor head injuries. Those, were, those seemed to be the two features kind of every year that people came back with and the abiding memories. Um, but one of the things that was, was a, uh, a big part of it, and if you're in a youth ministry, if you grew up in a church and were a part of that, you, you may have seen the same thing, was that kids would come along to these camps who had no background with Jesus or Christianity, may have even come from homes that were pretty strongly opposed to Jesus and the gospel. And they would come on these camps and it would just be a, a mind-blowing experience. They'd be away with people where, like, where older kids are actually nice to you and are not just waiting for an opportunity to prank you or to mock you or whatever it is, where they feel accepted and loved. We have a whole week away and it's fun and no one's drinking and ruining their life. And oftentimes their experience of that would be so great that they would think, I must be a Christian now. I mean, if I've gone from really thinking Christians are either daggy or actually just the worst to now I kind of like hanging out with them, I think I'm saved. But then you'd see over the following weeks that the conviction doesn't last and they slowly drift away. What they'd experienced was what we call common grace. In the book of Matthew, it says, Jesus says that God causes the sun to shine on both the evil and the good. That actually there is no one alive who has not experienced something of God's grace toward them. But that is not the same as saving grace. And Jesus is saying there are some who claim to have followed him, who claim to experience saving grace, to have known God truly and yet didn't. And what's the difference? What's that second line that he says? He says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. So what does this mean? When Jesus in John 8 is talking to a crowd, he says to them, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. This is the contrast that he makes. For true disciples versus false disciples, he says the difference is that my word finds no place in those who are not true disciples. They in fact seek to kill him. Rather than to follow Jesus, rather than hearing his words and obeying them, they reject them completely. The mark of a true disciple is that you hear Jesus' words and they find a home in you. You hear his words and you think, this is the word of God. This is God speaking directly to me. This is what I've been longing to hear my whole life. This is God himself. And this is the mark of a Christian. And Jesus is saying, this is the person who may pray to God and have their prayer answered. That's the claim that he's making. He says, if, my, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now, one question you might ask is, well, why go through all these metaphors about vines and fruit? Why not just say that? Just say, hey, it's only true disciples who get their prayers heard. Well, I think what he's saying here is significant in terms of shaping our prayer life. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus... You are to abide in him, to remain in him, to trust in him. And he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you may ask whatever you wish. This is the dynamic that he's describing. When you come to saving faith in Jesus, he gives you his Holy Spirit to change your heart and give you new desires so that when you hear the word of God, it changes your desires. And then as you pray with new desires, you pray God-honoring prayers that he delights to answer. That is the rich biblical dynamic of prayer that Jesus is describing here. 
He's saying as God's word, as you hear it, as the Spirit gives you strength to change your desires, you pray back to God His own word, and He delights to answer it. See, this is the opposite of the kind of prayer that Jesus' brother James describes in the book of James. In the book of James, James is writing to a church, most likely in Jerusalem or very nearby, and he says this. It's a scathing comment about their prayer life. In James 4, 3 to 4, he says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says there are prayers that God cannot answer if he is to remain to be God. There are prayers that are sinful and desirous of wrong things that if he were to collude with you in answering those prayers, he would be helping you to cheat on him. That's what he's saying here. He says you adulterous people. saying there is such a thing as adulterous prayer. When we desire something, that actually rather than seeking to glorify God, would diminish his glory. And he can't answer it. Any more than if a husband were to ask his wife to give him a lift to go and meet his mistress. What would she say to that? Of course she would say, I, I can't be a part of that. I can't help you to break this covenant of marriage. In the same way, here James is saying to when you pray with wrong desires, Desires that are not from God's word, that, that are not informed by what he has said about who he is and his will for your life. He says, God cannot answer that. See, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be granted to you. As his word does a work in our hearts and transforms our desires, we pray God-glorifying prayers. It's a bit like one reformer who famously said, love God and do what you want. You kind of get how that fits, right? If you love God, then doing what you want is what God wants. In the same way, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, pray whatever you wish and it will be given you. And so if this is true, and it is, then there are applications for us as, as people who follow Jesus. And the first one I think would be this. The first is to pray the word. It should be the case that reading scripture and praying go together. Go hand in glove. Listening to God through his word and praying are intimately connected. I get very concerned when someone says, you ask, you know, how's your sort of spiritual walk going? People say, oh, look, I haven't read my Bible for a long time, but my prayer life is going really great. I think Jesus would say from John 15, no, it's not. That actually the two need to go together. That if all you are doing is talking at God and not listening to God, that that's not a healthy biblical relationship. That actually it may be the case that those prayers are becoming more and more a private experience and a private understanding of who you think God is. It reminds me of years ago I went to a, a party that was I was invited because she was friends with my wife, Mel. So that's always going to be a night where you spend a lot of time by yourself. But, uh, but when we got there... I knew almost no one, and we sat down at a table. So whoever was sitting next to you, that's your friend for the whole night. That's it. And so uh, I got into a conversation with the guy next to me, and it was reasonably chatty, but it was one of those conversations where you sort of ask 50 questions, and you're really not getting any back. Um, But he was having a great time. 
and really enjoying the conversation. And, um, and at the end of the night, about two hours sort of deep into it, uh, he like it was, you know, everything was wrapping up, we we're ready to go. And he's like, hey, mate, it's great meeting you, so good chatting. And I think he'd really enjoyed the chat. And then he said, and it was quite telling, he was like, and um, sorry, what was your name? I was like, in that entire period, I, I don't think he knew anything about me. Uh, like, my name was even a bridge too far at that point. And he would say, look, that's not, that's not a healthy way to conduct conversations, if that's the general pattern. You know, it might have been an off night for him or whatever. That's not a, a normal way to do it, right? In the same way, if your prayer life is just you talking out God, I think Jesus would say from John 15, that is not a, a right and biblical dynamic. That a right and vigorous prayer life comes from knowing who God is intimately and closely from His Word as He has revealed Himself to be. Not our private, idiosyncratic version of who we would like God to be, but that we would know Him truly and deeply. Timothy Keller puts it this way in his book on prayer. He says, We would never produce the full range of biblical prayer if we were initiating prayer according to our own inner needs and psychology. It can only be produced... If we are responding in prayer according to who God is as revealed in Scripture. Some prayers in the Bible are like an intimate conversation with a friend. Others like an appeal to a great monarch and others approximate a wrestling match. We must not decide how to pray based on what types of prayer are most effective for producing the experiences and feelings we want. We pray in response to God himself. Jesus says, as if you abide in me and my words abide in you, pray whatever you wish and it will be given you. And so from this, why not make it a rule to not pray anything that you cannot find in Scripture? Why not make it a rule to say, look, I want to, I want to pray anything that I cannot clearly explain from Scripture. And this has been my conviction over the year. And so I've been trying to be a bit more disciplined in prayer life. And so I've kind of lined up the week to pray for things that kind of, uh, in a way that I could remember it. So Monday's Missional Community Monday, uh, Leadership Team Tuesday, Wednesday World, Thursday The Eldership. They don't all fit perfectly, but you kind of, you get the vibe. And sort of on it goes. But, but what I did over the last couple of weeks was to sit down and to open scriptures about all those different groups of people and think, what is it that scripture says about them flourishing? What is it the Scripture says about them and what I should be praying? And to write it down, to write down verses and to try and memorize them. So as I pray it, I know that these are prayers that God Himself has revealed He wants to be prayed so that it might be a a deep and intimate prayer life. And one of the things that I've noticed that's been so helpful in growing in prayer with God is that one of the things it does, praying the Word helps you avoid cliched prayers. I don't know if you've noticed this, but cliches are things that we rely upon to make up for a lack of depth in relationship. The, the, um, the you know, profound, uh, I guess, work of art, Madagascar 2, reveals a lot about relationships in the human psyche. Uh, I think it was 2, anyway, where they go to Africa. Anyway, it doesn't really matter, does it? No one's seen it, no one cares. But look, this is, this is what happens. These, if you don't know the story, there's a bunch of animals that break out of the zoo to go and experience life or whatever as you do, and they end up in Madagascar, and then I think the next one they end up in Africa. And when they get to Africa, the whole idea is like, as they get there, it seems like a paradise, but then things start to unfurl a little bit later in the film. 
I won't spoil it for you, even though you're not going to see it ever. But um, the, uh, one of them is that there's, a, there's a hippo, and she meets a male hippo, and immediately they connect. And, uh, and so everything's going great, but as the film sort of progresses, she starts to get the feeling that maybe there's not a lot of depth to their relationship. And so she says to him, um, hey, what is it that you, that you like about me? And he says, girl, you're huge. And she's like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. But uh, what are some things that you really kind of like about me? says, girl, you're enormous. And this banter goes on for, for minutes, right? Of just him just thinking of different synonyms for large. And he goes on and on until it occurs to her, he has no idea about her. I think it's the case that weak and vague prayers betray a lack of deep knowledge about who God really is. We lean on cliches and we don't have anything specific to say. I don't know if you've done it, but if you've ever at Grace prayed that God would bless this food to our bodies, I defy you to explain what that means. (laughs) I've prayed it before. I don't know what it means. And oftentimes, it's something that we say when we're like, we're kind of jammed for words, and so we just throw it out there. I reckon our prayer lives are often enfeebled by the fact that we are not meeting with God regularly in His Word. I don't know him closely enough and don't know what it is that he would have us pray on any given issue. Praying the word helps us avoid a weak and cliched prayer life. That we might have a deep and rich prayer life where we're like, I'm sure that this is God's will for this person or this part of life. And I'm going to be praying things richly. We might pray things from the word rather than bless this food to our bodies. You might pray, Hosea 13, 6, God, you say in your word that you fed your people until they were satisfied and in their satisfaction they forgot you. May this meal lead me closer to you rather than further away. May it lead me to depend on you rather than to depend on myself. We would open the word and have it inform our prayers. But the second one is this. If the first one is to pray the word, the second one is to track your prayer. So often in the Christian life, there is almost a, a confirmation bias toward God not answering prayers. It's kind of, C.S. Lewis described it a bit this way. If you, ever, when, if you were ever a kid and thought you were really clever in a coin toss and said to a mate when you were working out who's going to be king or queen in, um, in handball, and you, you flipped a coin, you're like, heads I win, tails you lose, just in case they didn't know everyone's got how that works. Yeah, okay, that's great. Um, <clears throat> the... Um, the idea was that if, for the uninitiated, they would call something not realizing that no matter what, the, the, kind of the result is determined. The C.S. Lewis says that often that's the way that we pray. It's a bit heads I win, tails you lose. If we pray something and God doesn't answer, we're like, ah, oh, kind of knew he wouldn't. But then if he does, things are going great, so we sort of forget about it and life goes on. I think if what Jesus says is true, we should be paying attention to what we pray and looking for prayers answered to pray things, maybe to write them down, and then to go back and see that God has been faithful in this. That God does delight to answer the prayers of his children. That as we pray the word, God answers prayer. That we wouldn't be caught in this heads I win, tails you lose trap where we feel like maybe God's not really answering prayer when he's been faithful all along. But the last one would be this. The third thing would be, I think this makes it for a call to remain steadfast in prayer. I hate to say it, but it's this, this time or cultural moment will probably not be a, a time associated with the word steadfast or perseverant. For all the, the good things for our time, 
that's probably not going to be a, a header over, over this period. We're not known for persevering with things. And it's the same, I think, often with our prayer life. I mean, did you notice that Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. But it doesn't say you'll be given it immediately. There are some things that God graciously just provides at the time, even miraculously and obviously. But there are other things that he provides over a long period of time. And then he has his purposes in this. I mean, one of the clearest purposes often is to see whether or not it's something that we actually really want. For our kids, they just want stuff all the time. And they're impulsive. So they'll be like, can I get this or that? Can I get a Spider-Man suit or this or that? And it, it kind of, towards Christmas, it got so hectic that we, we imposed a rule that there was a two-week cooling-off period for requests. Anything you asked for, our first response was, if you still want that in two weeks, we didn't say you'll get it. We said we'll talk about it then. So yeah, you can just keep moving the goalposts. But anyway, but, uh, but none of them made it through the cooling-off period. Sometimes... God wants us to persevere in prayer that we would develop a strong desire to see Him glorified. Some things He'll answer very quickly and others He has His timing in. Again, Keller in his book in prayer writes this, Our time frames are not in touch with ultimate reality. Our perspective on timing compared with God's is analogous to a two-year-old's with an adult's. God has good reasons for making us wait a long time to see some prayers answered. We are to be patient and perseverant in prayer. Not using it as another reason to say, I knew he didn't want to answer my prayers anyway. But to say, he might be doing a deeper work in this. He might be leading me to trust him more deeply, to develop stronger desires for his glory, that he might be glorified and that I might find joy in him. The last thing is this. What Jesus says is true, and it means that God genuinely wants to answer your prayers. It is an assurance as a child of God, that God would answer your prayers. God has not guaranteed to answer the prayers of the unbeliever. And yet he has for his own children. It is the privilege, a blood-bought privilege, of following Jesus that God would want to and delight to answer your prayers. And yet so often, we tend to think, I couldn't possibly want to. And maybe it's because we don't reflect enough on what he says about prayer in the Bible and we think too much of ourselves. We think of our own parents or even ourselves. If, if you are a parent, you think of getting harassed by your kids asking constant, constant requests. And you think, oh, it just wears me down. Imagine that for God, but times a billion. He must just be sick of it. And yet, that is not what he reveals about himself in Scripture. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He delights to answer the prayers of his people. And more than that, it cost him his own son that he might be able to do it. Again, one last one from Keller's book. He writes, We know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Do you expect God to answer your prayers? Because the cross would testify that he has a clear and abiding and loving commitment to do so. It was a blood-bought privilege that you'd be able to bring requests to the king and that he would delight to answer them. So for the love of God, in 2019, make a resolution to make it your most prayerful year ever. A year where you open the word and pray richly through it. 
and track these things that you might see where God has been faithful time and time and time again. You might hold out his promises and see him answer them, that he might be glorified in it. Let's pray that he would do so. Father God, thank you that you didn't leave us in sin, but you sent Christ to redeem us, to buy us back from the grave, to adopt us in as your own children, to hear our prayers and to answer them, to, to actually even achieve your will, your eternal will and plan through the prayers of your people. And Father, we pray that we would hear Jesus' word and that we would abide in them, that we would trust in them, and we would know that you delight to answer the prayers of your children. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Spend a minute reflecting on these truths from John 15 and after that, God's going to lead us.